Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, advocates are calling for more tenant protections as landlords seek to evict tenants during this pandemic. What should the government do? We'll discuss. And with the Spinco story gaining traction across the province, will the Ontario government impose more restrictions on gyms? And instead of a second debate, both Trump and Biden will compete for audience attention and ratings in dueling town halls. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Advocates are calling for more tenant protections as landlords seek to evict tenants during the pandemic. This is actually a rather troubling story. We've talked about this in the past, and we know that uh, the the Ford government actually put a moratorium on evictions uh, once the shutdown happened a few months ago. But that moratorium has now come and gone. And we're told now that more than 550 Hamilton landlords have applied to evict tenants over unpaid rent. Uh, It's... A problem for an awful lot of people. I mean, we were just talking about uh, tent encampments and about homelessness. Um, here's one of the root causes of it. So what's going to happen? And what should the government do in a situation like this? Karima Saad is a lawyer in Notary Public uh, who's uh, been a very strong advocate uh, for tenants in situations like that. She joins us on the program to talk about the uh, what's turning into a crisis. Karima, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Thanks for having me back. These, these numbers are staggering, aren't they? And this is just the Hamilton area. It's a drop in the bucket. Um, I, I know that some of the data province-wide, we're looking at thousands of eviction applications that have been filed since COVID. And, and there's a couple of things that are, I guess are part of the discussion here. Obviously, there's the fact that the moratorium is over. Uh, there's a lot of pressure on the government now to, to reinstate that. I'm not sure just how they're going to do this. But the other is a piece of legislation, uh, Bill 184, which, uh, well, the critics of the bill are calling it the uh, easy eviction uh, bill. Uh, and maybe you can explain that to our listeners, what the impact that's having. Sure. Um, so one of the, I guess, most important aspects of Bill 184 on a practical level, it gives landlords and tenants the ability to reach repayment agreements outside of court. And the idea was that this would facilitate negotiation and maybe reduce the burden of hearings at the landlord-tenant board. The problem is that when these agreements are signed or entered into and there's an imbalance of power between the parties um, and a tenant doesn't appreciate that if they miss any term of this repayment agreement, the landlord can get an eviction order without a hearing. Um, and it, it really turns the process on its head because normally you have a hearing first and then you enter into a plan. And if you break that plan, then the landlord can um, move for this ex parte sort of fast track eviction. Um, but in this way, it's very plausible that some tenants will get evicted without ever having um, communicated with the landlord and tenant board. So, in other words, you're guilty automatically. Something like that. It, it basically um, it, it reverses the burden of proof um, in a sense because the the landlord simply needs to write into the board, say that you didn't follow the plan, and and you're out the door. Um, now there are ways. I don't want to sensationalize. Um, if if you do receive one of these eviction notices, a tenant does have ten days to request a set-aside hearing where they can explain the circumstances, either the circumstances of how they signed this agreement or why they missed a payment or were late. Um, so it's not a done deal, but there are many tenants who, who will miss that deadline 
um, and then it becomes a lot harder to reverse. There's an intimidation factor at play here, too, and I think we need to discuss that. Uh, this is a, a, a huge, huge mess for an awful lot of people that may not understand the process and exactly what their rights are, what they should be doing, and what they're allowed to do. And, uh, and a lot of them might just throw their hands up and say, I'm not even going to bother. I, I can't go up against my landlord. I, I just I don't have that kind of expertise. I can't argue like this in front of a, a judge or a tribunal or whatever it's going to be. I mean, they, and they, they're probably just going to say, well, you know, I'm just going to – I got to go. That's all there is to it. it. It's scary. It's scary to be confronted with that, um, especially if um, your landlord may be represented. We know that um, sort of looking at the breakdown, who has paralegals and lawyers and who's on their own, uh, the vast majority of landlords are represented and tenants are not. Um, so even though tenants can access resources like duty counsel, um, it can feel very much like a David and Goliath situation. And I know that in, in Toronto, we had scenarios of landlords going door to door with ATM machines in hand ready to collect rent um, during the pandemic. So I, I don't have a ton of confidence that all of these repayment agreements are signed um, sort of in a way that uh, no one feels uh, compelled or, or like they have no other options. Um, but, but for listeners, you do have an option. You do not have to sign a repayment plan. Or if you do, um, it can be a clause that the landlord needs to notify you before seeking eviction. Here in Hamilton, uh, I, I know you're familiar with the Toronto numbers, but uh, City Housing Hamilton, of course, is the, the largest uh, uh, social housing agency here. Uh, they estimate that about 26% of uh, their residents are behind in rent, uh, which I think is... is very telling of exactly what the economic situation is for an awful lot of people because of COVID-19, uh, unemployment. I mean, there's a whole lot of factors that go into a situation like this. Uh, you can knock on the door all you want with a, you know, with a, a, a interact machine or an ATM machine, but if you don't have the money, you don't have the money. And, you know, housing is such a crucial part of stability that when we take away that piece of the puzzle, um, it, it there's a cascading effect. Other social ills um, when people are, are in precarious housing or, or don't have it at all. Um, and, yeah, I, I know that you, you were just talking about the encampments that we've seen um, sort of sprout up across the province. Um, and th there's nowhere for people to go. So, it, you know, to me, the effect of Bill 184, um, one of its main effects really is to undermine um, the intent and purpose of the legislation that's designed to protect tenants and give them recourse through uh, various legal procedures to ensure that they don't um, give away their rights. And, and a repayment agreement is a way to give away um, certain very fundamental rights. We mentioned that there's a lot of pressure being put on uh, different uh well, by the to the government by different agencies around the, the province right now because this is not a Hamilton or Toronto problem. This is going on in just about every community right now. Uh, there's a move afoot now to have them reconsider the moratorium uh, on this, and in spite of the fact, or in light of the fact rather, that we, uh, by the premier's own acknowledgement, are heading into phase two of COVID-19, the second uh, wave of this. Uh, is that even something that might be considered at this stage? I know that. Um there are strong calls for it. I'm not sure that I've heard anything from the government that indicates it's a serious option for consideration. 
um, which is a, a bit surprising because yeah, the numbers, um, if that's what we're going on, seem to be worse now. Um, and we are heading into winter. So there are definitely some looming concerns. Um, and if we do see a new moratorium, I think that uh, the government should consider seriously how are we going to deal with um, landlords who aren't the large landlords um, and, and may be relying on this rental income in order to maintain their properties. What are we doing for them to ensure that they themselves are not housed? Because um, there, there is a, a conceptual and practical um, distinction that should be made between um, a, a company that's multinational and owns hundreds of apartment units across the province um, and someone who rents out their basement in order to cover the mortgage. Well, exactly. And, and I think we've talked about this in past discussions as well. I mean, we're not trying to paint landlords here as, as, you know, the evil people. I mean, I understand they've got bills to pay at the, and, you know, they're, they're concerned about this as well, which is why the government really needs to intervene here. Uh, you can't just throw this bill out here and say, okay, you guys fend for yourselves because it's clearly not working, is it? No. And, and it's, I, I mean, from my vantage point, it's creating chaos because um, if someone doesn't receive their ex parte eviction order, in the mail for whatever reason, um, you know, the sheriff can just show up at their door. And that's a very ugly surprise when you think that everything is copacetic and I'm doing my best to make payments. Um, you're right. We all have bills to pay. And there's no real reason why rental housing income um, should be insulated from the pandemic. Um, and, and so that's something that we need to think about as well. Um, you know, who is is suffering losses and who is expected to, um, you know, pay out at any cost uh, in order to protect someone else's income. More to come on this, to be sure. Uh, this is a crisis that's not going to go away without some assistance uh, from governments, and, and we'll be watching to see exactly what they're going to do. Karima, as always, thank you so much for the time. It was great talking with you again today. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Karina Syed, of course, lawyer in Notre Republic, and uh, who had been advocating for attendance in this, uh, well, as I say, growing crisis that uh, we need to deal with here in this province. And, and again, it's it's because of COVID. And as, as our leaders have told us, both prime ministers and, and premiers and presidents, well, not so much the president, I guess, uh, it, COVID's not going away anytime soon. So there's got to be something here. I know they put sunset clauses on a lot of these assistance programs, and that's understandable. Uh, but, you know, once the sunset clause comes and goes, the people are still in dire circumstance, and there's got to be a long-term plan here. So let's see what the government's going to do about this. Uh, this is the Bill Kelly Show, 980 CFPL London and 900 CHML Hamilton. We told you about uh, a couple of weeks ago about the anniversary of a rather ominous day, of course, uh, in London. Uh, it was the explosion, of course, on Woodman Avenue. Well, the woman who has been charged in last year's explosion on Woodman Avenue is expected to enter a guilty plea this week. Andrew Graham, reporter with 980 CFPL, uh, joins us to talk about this. Uh, Andrew, the, the lawyers have talked about this. Has, has a plea been worked out or has... has, has What's going to be happening today? This is going to be done virtually, I would assume, isn't it? Yeah, so it's going to be done by teleconference. So because of that, um, Daniela Lee, the woman charged, won't actually be there herself, but her lawyer would. And, and I did speak with her lawyer, Richard Braden, and what he told me is that he expects this to be a very uh, a very brief and straightforward hearing. He expects her to plead guilty to only four of the eight charges 
she or the 12 charges she is facing. So that'd be for four counts of impaired driving causing bodily harm. And he expects the remaining eight charges to be withdrawn at the end of the case. So what are the ramifications for this, for the for this young lady, Diana Lee's? Daniela Lee's, I'm sorry. That, 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 that's really the big question here. And, and from the lawyer, he wasn't much able to speculate uh, too much on that. But uh, again, um, if you just read the comment section, I mean, this has been such a such a heated topic in London. You know, some folks want her to seek rehabilitation. Other folks want jail time. So it is a wide range of things. So I don't know how much our public perception will play a role in this. But um, I, again, there, there was the, the worst outcome here was, you know, a number of homes are evacuated. Three homes were completely, completely destroyed as a result of this. And one firefighter obviously was seriously injured. Well, I, was, I wanted to ask you that because when you and I talked about this just around the time of the anniversary of the explosion, uh, in, in the way you were t- describing this and in in talking to the neighbors there, uh, even if this finishes off today, this is not closure for those people. This is not going to go away anytime soon. I really don't think it is. And, and the woman whose home was hit, Karen Fisher, um, her home is still, it's still, there's still nothing there. You know, they haven't begun construction yet. The last time I spoke with her, this was due to the pandemic, obviously calling, causing delays there. Um, and again, that the home is still, there's still nothing there. You know, there's still a lot of rebuilding to do. And again, if you just drive through the neighborhood, you can tell it's, it's just not the same as it used to be. Um, and again, speaking again to the woman whose home was hit in this situation, uh, she said to me that, you know, this woman going to jail isn't going to bring her home back. So I think she understands that there is a, a bit of a disconnect between the punishment Daniela Elise received versus the closure she received. There's still a lot of bitterness, though, isn't there? Exactly. Still, still, still a lot of it there. Exactly. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to see just how this rolls out today, and and invariably, of course, that will you know, in, I guess, inflame the debate about whether or not the, the sentence is going to be strict enough, et cetera, et cetera. Did you get the sense in talking to the lawyer, uh, Andrew, though, that there's, uh, there's she's repentant about what happened? That, uh, that you know, because that is usually part of the discussion when they talk about sentencing. I, I, I did a bit, you know, and, and especially when you're when she's entering into a guilty plea, right? This is this is this is a matter, and according to the lawyer, just the sense I was getting, where that, you know, they want to go by procedures, they want to make sure everything goes as fast as it can for the court system, because you know they know it's been going on for a while. Um, this hearing they had yesterday was actually supposed to happen in mid March, but the pandemic obviously mm-hmm. threw that back further towards today. Um, and, and so he expects again this just to be a very brief and straightforward thing with sentencing hopefully happening in early July. But from the sound of it, you know, the the, the woman charged here, she is remorseful and, and she is she is aware of, you know, everything that's being said in London. Because, again, every time every time we post a story about this, whether it's a anniversary story of the actual incident itself or whether it's another update about the court hearings, the comments are just filled, you know, filled with people saying all sorts of things, some of them more positive, some of them more negative. But, again... People in London are very aware of this. This isn't something that's going away. It's not something that's being forgotten. It's something that folks are being reminded of every time they go to Woodman Avenue. I know every time you've done that, you go to the 980 webpage and you see this, and I've read some of those comments, and just that, which indicated to me that there's a lot of people here that uh, are not going to forgive or forget for this. I mean, they're very upset about this, the impact that it had on community, and uh, it doesn't go away, uh, even with the sentencing today. I know you'll be following the story and uh, posting uh, a little bit later on as to what's going to happen, Andrew. Thanks, as always. Great talking with you again today. Thank you for having me. Take care. Andrew Graham, of course, uh, 980 CFPL News, covering the story of uh, Daniela Lee, who will be sentenced to, or ch- 
Well, and well, they kept sentencing a little bit later on, but I mean, uh, you know, this has such an impact on neighborhoods and on communities when something like this happens. It was just a horrific evening, of course, for so many people. Nobody was killed, thankfully, but uh, property damage and, and uh, let's face it, a, a sort of thing that you're not going to forget anytime soon for anybody that was anywhere around there. And the impact, of course, and the sounds and the noises and the, the, the explosion itself that, uh, that impacted not just that neighborhood, but a lot of that community. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900. CHML. Obviously, the daily briefings from uh, the Premier continue, and uh, the uh, story here that started here in Hamilton with Spinco uh, is gaining now North American attention. American uh, networks are watching this, too, because of the spread of COVID-19 and the way this has happened, of course. That, of course, is a, a spin place down on James Street North in the north end of the city of Hamilton. And we need to be clear about this, by the way. You know, this is a facility that followed all the rules, did all the protocols that they were supposed to, yet there's still a spread of COVID-19. And as we've been reporting, uh, they figure that there's about 61 people have been exposed, and there could be more as they do some contact tracing to see what's actually happening there. And uh, it came up yesterday during the briefing, and the Premier, well, was pretty sympathetic to what was going on. You know, I I feel bad for all the the gyms, but I really... feel terrible about the smaller gyms that have followed protocols and have done everything they possibly can to uh, make sure that they have a safe and environment. Well, let's see just what they're going to do about that. Uh, Sabrina Nanji joins us from Queen's Park today. Uh, Sabrina, thanks for the time. Good to talk with you again today. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. Queen's Park is a beehive of activity these days. I mean, they're back in the legislature. There's a lot going on with long-term care facilities, and there's nothing, no shortage of anything for you to talk about. But let's let's talk about the COVID-19 approach to this and, and the Premier's uh, sympathetic you know, tone there for what's going on, not just with Spinco, but a number of other small gyms too, uh, which leads to the question, what are they going to do about it? I mean, I know there is pressure in some circles for them to say, well, you know what, you better rethink the restrictions because they're not working. And others are saying, wait a second, we're small businesses too. Are you going to shut us down? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, they, they're definitely keeping us on our toes. There's there's no shortage of things to talk about, but it does seem like this fitness center and, and Spinco in particular is getting a lot of attention. I was even reading um, about it on, on CNN this morning. Yeah, uh, And I think you're right. The thing that, that uh, most that's catching most of our attention is the fact that, you know, this place followed all the public health protocols. Uh, and so are a lot of gyms. And I know a lot of people who aren't in, uh, you know, the, the hot zones, that have been rolled back, have been enjoying going back to the gym. Uh, you know, fitness centers had a workout protest at Queen's Park on Monday mm-hmm. um, just because they are fearing, you know, more crackdowns um, and or more broadly. And, and that is sort of what the premier alluded to. Uh, he, he does seem to be very sympathetic, but that might be because he knows, uh, you know, something has to come down on these businesses which, uh, you know, he's, he's been the premier that's all about small business. So this, this is really tough for him. But we did hear the Associate Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Barbara Yaffe, say that, you know, even though these places are following these rules, it's the types of settings that are making people more susceptible to, to these cases. You know, you're working out. Uh, you don't necessarily need to make a, wear a mask while you're actually working out. You know, you should be before and after. But, you know, during, during a workout, um, you're sweating, you're panting, uh, and and I think it's it's that that that's making uh, you know the spread uh, and transmission. It, it's it's more it's becoming more of a problem in those settings. So it seems clear that that public health officials are going to have to uh, you know revise uh, the, the what the public health measures are, uh, and we don't know what that is yet. Uh, Dr. Yaffe did say yesterday they are reviewing guidelines. We're not really sure about 
the timing of it or when it might happen. But uh, I think this this case in Hamilton is making everyone sit up. Well, I think it's making everybody rethink exactly what the protocol was, too. I'm, you know, because a lot of the stuff that they were required to do, and, and again, as we mentioned, Spinco is compliant. Most of the other gyms, if not all of them, that uh, that I've talked to or heard from anyway in the last, last couple of days, especially uh, in this area, say, we're, we're playing by the rules here. We're doing everything we're supposed to do. But a lot of these protocols, though, Serena, seem to be in, uh, to, to deal with the fact of touching things. And, you know, about, you know the virus could be on the, the gym equipment or on the bike or whatever the case might be. But we, we're now, I think, on a pretty regular basis finding out more and more about how airborne this virus is and that that's a whole different situation and a whole different set of circumstances uh and i don't know how they're going to deal with this as as you say by definition when you're at the gym you're huffing and puffing you're breathing deeper and and you know let's face it if 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 you are positive and not even knowing you're positive uh you could be spreading that virus to well such as what happened here is just about everyone else in the room yeah, I think I think ventilation is a huge part of it. You know, that's yeah. why the the rollbacks in the hotspots, Peel, Toronto, and Ottawa have been on on indoor gyms. Uh, but you know, the weather's getting colder. I don't know how much longer people are going to be able or want to even work out outside. Um, so I think ventilation. There, there might have to be um, you know more rules around that, uh, open windows, that type of thing. But I don't know how easy or quick it is for gyms and fitness studios to comply or, or get up to speed. Uh, that. That's, you know, I'm not an expert on this stuff, but that seems like a bit of a bigger undertaking than just, you know, wiping down machines. Um, so I, I think that uh, definitely if there are further rollbacks, one thing that, you know, might be the silver lining here is that last week the Premier did announce $300 million to help the businesses, um, you know, in, in other ways, offset things like hydro bills and that. Uh, they have offered, you know, one-time grants for certain businesses, a thousand bucks, you know, to help with PPE or even plexiglass barriers, uh, HVAC systems, that type of thing. So I do think, uh, you know, we could see money uh, attached attached to, uh, you know, further rollbacks, that type of thing, just to give businesses a helping hand. But yeah, it definitely seems like some some type of new restrictions might be coming down and, and more broadly as well. Yeah, I was uh, watching the presser yesterday when Dr. Yaffe was talking about uh, the fact that they were going to reevaluate this, and she was pretty short on details, wasn't she? Yeah, we don't, we don't know what they'll be. Uh, you know, the doctors, uh, they have their daily briefing again this afternoon, so hopefully we can find out a little bit more about that. But uh, I, I'm not sure. They, they've just said they've, they're reviewing the guidelines now, but, you know, this stuff is is all happening in real time, and this government has been, you know, criticized about playing catch-up and, They've they've put in these restrictions, you know, after we've seen these cases and how high, you know, they've they've been in recent days. Um, they they put the lockdowns in after that. So I think, uh, you know, it will be on the government to sort of move quickly on this. Uh, and you know, they the premier has said himself, you know, they can't move at the speed of of government. They need to move at the speed of COVID, and and they are going as quickly as they can. Um, but I think yeah, the the doctors will have a lot to answer for. You know what these restrictions might look like. It's a lot to just say that, uh, you know, we're reviewing guidelines. I'm sure there's a lot of fitness studio owners that, you know, are, are, are going crazy right now and, and are really worried about, uh, you know, what could happen. Well, from a business standpoint, but also, from, as you mentioned, from a public health standpoint, uh, and there's a need here. I mean, I was watching Global News last night, and they, they actually had a shot uh, at one of the gyms in Toronto in the GTA, and there's actually a lineup outside the gym. There's people standing there, socially distanced, with their, their gym bags, their equipment, waiting. And this is not like waiting to get into a grocery store or the LCBO. I mean, you, you got to wait for somebody to finish their workout and come out there. But they, that's how important it is. And, and doctors have told us this as well, 
that because of the lockdown, because of the self-isolation that many of us are going through and continue to go through, getting out and working out is, is a key part for mental health issues. And uh, that's why I think there was such a rush to get back to the gyms. Uh, and I'm not, I don't think for a second they, they did this too soon. I don't know if they just included all of the protocols they're going to use. So it's, it's, it's not going to be an easy solution. It's not going to be like it was in March where you just say, okay, let's shut everything down. I don't think the government wants to go there. Oh, hugely. I think even for myself personally, um, I was going, you know, it, it got shut down for in Toronto. It got shut down here pretty quickly, but I, I had been going to the gym and, and my gym, uh, you know, it is a bit of a smaller gym, so I felt fine. Um, I didn't have any problems. You know, I was, I'm lucky and I felt like everyone was following the protocols, but it's a huge, uh, I was a lot nicer. You know, I was in a greater mood. It was a huge <laughs> relief, like on your mental health. Absolutely. So I think a lot of people, you know, are going to be worried and are going to be looking, um, you know, for their gyms you know, get up to code quickly. So I think we need to hear what those codes are, you know, what's going to happen. Um, and you're right, you know, it does take its toll on mental health. Uh, and and this thing, it seems like it's it's going to be the new normal. So I think a lot of people are going to want to figure out, you know, what the new normal is. As you said, people are willing to line up uh, to work out when they can. So I think, you know, the sooner we can get these protocols in place and everyone knows what they are, uh, the better. Do you get the impression, though, that uh, I was trying to read between the lines yesterday at the presser as well from the premier and uh, and the minister that uh, the reason they're taking their time on this and they're not rushing into a decision is is I think the the long term solution they're thinking of here is how do we help these businesses because uh, there's as you say there's more money that's going to have to be allocated here and I think what they're trying to do is say what do we need to do what do we have to help them to to install or whatever it's going to be to make this a better situation within those small gyms. Yeah, I think that's absolutely a part of it. Um, I've also been hearing that there has been major pushback uh, at the cabinet table. I know uh, that, uh, uh, you know, more than one cabinet ministers, and I can't name names, but I know that, uh, you know, a few cabinet ministers have been pushing back really hard against, you know, these new restrictions, including on fitness centers, because they know, you know, how hard the impact is on the public, on the businesses. Um, and, and it's been a really heated debate. You know, I think the premier said that the last couple of cabinet and caucus meetings went for four hours, um, which, which is, I guess, a, a long time, more than they usually go. And, and there's been a heated debate. And he, he always says they, they do come out, you know, united. But there has been quite a bit of pushback. And a part of me wonders if, you know, that is sort of holding things up as well. Um, they're... uh, there's a lot of ministers who are hearing from their constituents that they don't want these things to happen. Uh, So I think uh, the the cabinet ministers and even the premier has sort of hinted at this himself, that they need to see the the hardcore data. And, you know, in, in this, Finco case in Hamilton. That's just one. That's just one gym. You know, there are maybe a couple others, and, and that's a, uh, you know, that's considered, you know, believed to be one of the worst outbreaks in the country. So a lot of people are are looking to that. But I think that the cabinet ministers want to see, you know, uh, more data. And of course, you know, what they get to see is is even more than what we, the public, get to see. So even if the cabinet ministers are sort of, you know, calling for more data before they co-sign on on these rollbacks uh i think you know it would also help the public to see you know everything that the government is being to well there's a certain apprehension and i noticed that with uh, the q a yesterday at the presser and i'm sure you picked up on it too about you know what's the next step here i, I know that there's a lot of grief about you know rolling back to this modified stage two for for the gta and and for peel and for the ottawa area 
uh, but it's been, what, about a week now, and the numbers are a little bit better, but not much better, And and which begs the question, are they going to extend that? I know the Premier was asked about that yesterday and said, no, we're not thinking about that yet. Uh, the operative word there being yet, but uh, he's got to be troubled by the fact that uh, we're we're not really flattening the curve the way they had anticipated we could. Right, yeah, and you're right, you know, it hasn't been that long since the most recent rollbacks. Uh, We usually need about two weeks to get a good sense of how, you know, that's playing out uh, in terms of transmission and all that, so I think you know the premier is not going to do uh, not going to do anything until he, you know he he really sees he needs to like he is very hesitant he doesn't want he wants to move ahead I think we all want to um, I mean he did say yes like yesterday it was a, a crappy situation if I if I can repeat that but you know uh, <laughs> yeah I think it it just sucks everyone feels the same way the premier doesn't want to do this um, but there, there's really no choice and they are making these uh, rollbacks in 28 day intervals so. It will. I think 28 days is is that was chosen because that's enough for for public health and the health officials that are advising the premier to to look and say, do we need to do more? I think they're hoping that you know this can what they've done will be able to be enough in 28 days to to bring it down. But uh, you're right, we're not we're not quite seeing that yet. Well, and especially towards the end of the month here, we're probably going to see just just how 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 behaved we were during the Thanksgiving weekend because that that's the right. 14-day period coming up just around Halloween, as a matter of fact. So those numbers are going to be important as to how we're going to go through this. And as you can recall, when we went to the different stages of recovery a few months ago, as you were reporting, Sabrina, uh, there was a lot of fr- frustration because it wasn't province-wide. It was, okay, you guys can go forward, uh, you can't. And, you know, Hamilton and the GTA and were held back uh, at, at, at different times until they saw those numbers getting better. So it's it's going to be a piecemeal situation here i know the shutdown was pretty much a blanket shutdown but i i i got the impression that the they don't want to go there again they're going to do this a city by city or region by region yeah it, it will it seems that that's the case that's going to be the way it is going forward um you know it seems the hotspots tend to always be the the same top three usual suspects uh but yeah i think people are looking you know to york region um hamilton uh, even like the greater Hamilton area, those places, uh, so there might be more regions, you know, even the 905, um, Durham, Pickering, those types of areas too. I think, uh, those places, uh, even, you know, in, in Markham, um, you know, the mayor there had said he, he, they, they had been asking for more rollbacks because they didn't want to become a hotspot. So, you know, the, the premier says he's listening to the mayors as well, but I, I do think that we might see more, rollbacks or modified stage two in other spots uh in other regions that currently aren't there you know before we see the hotspots going forward to stage three i guess i'm i'm i hope i sounds like it might be a little uh worse before it gets better or it, it might just be in fits and starts like this might not we might move ahead to stage three and then maybe further down the line uh if we don't have a widespread vaccine yet we might have to have to go back so i think it might be a little bit of you know, start and stop, uh, that, that might be the case indefinitely by region. There are some unintended consequences, though. I'm sure you've seen the story, too, that there are some regions now, for instance, for bars and restaurants, that are seeing a large influx of people from other areas. They're coming from the hot spots and going to the other areas that, that don't have restrictions uh, because they want to stay up and have a couple of drinks or whatever the case might be. And, and I understand some communities right now are asking for proof of residency before they'll even let you into these buildings now. Like, you know, if you're from Toronto, I don't want you down here in Niagara Falls, that sort of thing. Uh, at least you can't mm-hmm. eat there anyway. And it's, it's, it's getting pretty messy right now. But, I mean, obviously, you know, 
people are going to go where they find the services. And I, I know the government's aware of that, too. So they've got to actually think this thing through. You can't just make an arbitrary decision here because there's going to be some consequences and some follow to it. Yeah, we haven't seen them, uh, you know, like formally enforcing or restricting travel. You know, they've sort of requested if you don't need mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, don't go to, to other places. Um, and, and they sort of seem to be even passing some of the onus on to the local health officers because the local health officers, you know, do uh, do have these powers um, under the under the Health Act. It's called Section 22 where they can make these really broad orders about um, about their mis- municipalities and what happens in their areas. So I think that's where you start to see, um, uh, you know, maybe uh, maybe rules around around out of towners and that type of thing. But I, I, there's nothing really from the province. And at the end of the day, um, I think that's really difficult to enforce. So I, I don't think that we might go, you know, down the down the road of, uh, you know, restricting or prohibiting travel to other parts of the province. Um, I, I don't, can't really see that that happening in a very formal way. But uh, yes, I think I think uh, like it, or it being banned in a formal way. But I think you know they have they have requested it, um, and I'm not sure if they're doing it strongly enough for people to uh, follow it. Like they have. They have acknowledged that, you know, their messaging has sometimes been a bit muddled um, and and that has, you know, contributed to people feeling lax or well, you remember what knowing happened what in the, the rules time, are not right? wanting to follow them. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think that we'll see travel restricted in, in a, any big way. Yeah, I mean, they tried to do that at the beginning of cottage season, remember, in the springtime, and mm-hmm. it, it didn't go over well. You know, we don't want you here. And we have people in Haldeman saying don't go to the cottages, uh, even though the premier went up and visited his place up in Muskoka, I guess. There was some pushback on that. So I, I don't think they're going to touch that one anytime soon. But it's going to yeah. be fascinating. There will be another one later on today, and I know that uh, that you'll be there following it, and we'll see exactly what uh, next steps are going to be. Always a pleasure, uh, Sabrina. Thank you so much. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Talk soon. Okay, Sabrina Nanji, of course, from Queen's Park today, covering the events uh, at Queen's Park. And as we mentioned, uh, we are expecting some sort of an announcement from uh, Deputy Premier Christine Elliott uh, in uh, just about an hour or so. And uh, Stephen Lecce, the Education Minister, apparently has some sort of an announcement uh, because obviously the uh, going back to school plan is not without controversy. So there's an expectation there could be some revision to that. We are monitoring those uh, two events, though, and as soon as uh, we get some news on those, we'll pass those on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This was supposed to be debate night uh, in the United States. Uh, This is supposed to be the second debate between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, But it changed dramatically, of course, because of Trump's uh, positive diagnosis and his time in Walter Reed Hospital. So the uh, the debate committee uh, said, you know what, we're not doing it, the the town hall thing. We're going to do a virtual debate. Well, as soon as that happened, of course, Trump backed out. So it's going to be a different kind of evening uh, on the TV tonight. Uh, Sagar Magani has the details. There won't be any of this. The Radical question, left. Will you shut who is up, on, man. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? No repeat of their hostile first debate. Tonight was to be the second debate, but President Trump refused to do it virtually after his COVID-19 diagnosis, so the debate commission scrapped it. Biden will appear tonight on an ABC town hall and the president on NBC at the very same time forcing viewers to pick which candidate to watch instead of seeing them interact, with the election fewer than three weeks away. Sagar Magani, Washington. 
just when you didn't think you were going to see anything new. Uh, there we go again. So it's caused quite a bit of consternation, and it is not without controversy, as you might have expected, uh, you know, the way that the the whole thing is rolled out. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Brian J. Karam, executive editor for Sentinel Newspapers and, of course, political analyst on CNN. Brian, welcome back to the program. Hope you're doing well these days. <laughs> well, you know, locking down when I can and going to the White House when I have to, but all the good so far. <laughs> yeah, well... Uh, let me ask you about what's going on here, because as I'm watching what has developed over the last couple of days, and we, we kind of knew when we talked last week, you know, when Trump said he wasn't going to do the debate, okay, so that's fallen apart. And, of course, they proposed alternative debates, and the Biden camp said, we've already agreed to this one. I'm bending on anything like this. Uh, but NBC is getting a lot of pushback, I'm seeing, from, from other media outlets and from, you know, actually politicos uh, right around the country saying, what you, you know what, you're pandering to Trump by giving him this town hall. Uh, the Biden thing was, was scheduled first, of course, when, when Trump backed out of the debate. What, what are you hearing about that? Well, yeah, uh, NBC is getting a lot of pushback. But more importantly for the American electorate, it just reduces the race for the highest office in our land to a ratings fight on a Thursday night. I, I, I would be surprised, actually, if either one of them uh, did well in the ratings. I and, But, you know, if Trump does better than Biden, he's going to come out and toot how he's better than anybody, and he won the ratings war, and then if Bi- Biden probably won't tweet that. But the idea that, you know, a, a democracy is being de- decided in, in a primetime uh, smackdown on two different networks it, it it defies the imagination it's it's like bad science fiction it, but that's trump's game though isn't it i mean he'd love the fact it it's is. all about ratings for him isn't it brian it's he you know at the end of the day if he can go out screaming and kicking saying i did more than anybody else and i had the highest ratings ever of any president and he spins like a whirling dervish into his grave he'll be happy but um he's going to kick and scream all the way you know, into the ground. Um, and I, yeah, at the end of the day, I don't even know if he really wants to be president. He certainly has never done the job. He's only been running for the last four years, and that's what he seems to like best. He's not at the White House at all, not doing anything. Um, so, I mean, you know, when I go into the White House looking for information about what our government is doing from the chief executive officer of the United States, and you can't get a straight answer as to, whether or not he's going to donate plasma, for example, since he's supposedly immune from the coronavirus, you can't even get an answer to that. Then you really are kind of uh, <laughs> the the United States is not what it used to be. That's what I can say for public consumption on the airwaves. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know, but uh, you you guys talk when the White House press corps get together. I mean, there's, there's a lot of sharing of stories and going on. Uh, your friend uh, from that press corps, Jim Acosta from uh, CNN, was uh, reporting last week about the attitude and the atmosphere in the White House these days, Brian. I wanted to get your read on that. Uh, I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to paraphrase what, what Acosta was saying, but it was I, I didn't ba- basically that he says there's a sense there that this is almost over. That uh, they're they're not going to do well oh. November third. Absolutely. I, that's um, my latest column uh, in Playboy uh, this week. It's out with a whimper. It's eerily silent inside the White House. Some of the staffers are predicting their boss is going to lose. They're putting out resumes. Um, there's one who said his, his how he handled getting the uh, coronavirus didn't help him out any. There are plenty of people who think he never had it. There are those who think he still does. There are others who are angry that he got a, a level of health care that 
millions in the United States couldn't get and 210,000 people who died probably would have wanted. So, yeah, there is a, a feeling inside uh, the staffers in the White House that, uh, man, this, this is coming to an end. As one of them told me, you know, their last hurrah is trying to get through the um, Supreme Court nominee. And I said, why is that your last hurrah? And he goes, well, I, I probably am not going to be here after the inauguration. And I said, why? And they said, well, because he's not going to win. Yeah, well, I want to talk about the Barrett confirmation in just a couple of seconds. But it, it, it's, it's rather interesting to see exactly how this is rolling out and the attitude that people seem to be taking about uh, what some think is inevitable. But the COVID-19 thing and, and Trump's diagnosis, I'm seeing, is, is becoming alive on social media once again. And it's that very point you just mentioned, Brian, uh, in your piece in, in Playboy, is that did he even have it? Uh, because we know that people have had COVID and had mild cases and they recover relatively quickly. We, we know that. But we know that people that have severe cases, and, you know, when you get rushed to the hospital and have two bouts of oxygen, that, I'd consider that a severe case. You don't get over it in four days. No. And you know, that's the real question. People, because he's lied so much and so often, I mean, everything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. People cannot believe that he had it or cannot believe he's really over it or cannot believe that there's a miracle treatment out there or who, who believe that he's, you know, in, in essence, uh, putting one over on the United States that he can get uh, health care no one else can. But I, I would say to your point, there is no, <laughs> you can't count the guy out. His window is closing. But this, I mean, honestly, if he were to walk out with a, a bear on a unicycle blowing horns saying, here's our new press secretary <laughs> or my new VP candidate, I wouldn't be surprised. You can't be surprised by this guy because he'll do anything to seek re-election. So to count him out yet, mm, I wouldn't do that. But the window is closing, and I think he is becoming increasingly desperate. Well, yeah, I, I agree with you totally. I mean, anybody that looks at the polls and says this is over is, is crazy. I mean, you know, we've seen this happen too many times before, and they're, it's still relatively tight in a lot of those swing states, isn't it, Brian? Yeah, he's lost some ground in some key swing states he has um i mean he's still solid in west virginia and kentucky so that kind of tells you since kentucky is the home of Rand paul and and mitch mcconnell where uh, where that's coming from but he has uh it is tight in, in a lot more uh, states than it was in 2016 including north carolina georgia uh, ohio the rust belt states even Indiana is a little closer. He won by 16 there. He's only within the margin of error now or slightly outside of the margin of error there now in polling. So it's not like 2016. The, the fear that the Democrats have is that people think it's a done deal and they won't show up. But with early voting opening and there are lines literally hours long for people to vote and they're not Trump supporters, that can kind of tell you where it's going for Trump. And I think he knows it. Uh, you mentioned uh, Judge Barrett, whose uh, confirmation is, well, let's face it, it's inevitable. I think, you know, it's simply because yeah. of the majority in the Senate these days. 
yesterday was rather telling, though. I mean, there were obviously the senators, for the, who, those who aren't watching, uh, get to question uh, the, the nominee. And uh, softballs usually from the Republicans and some rather telling questions. I thought Senator Blumenthal's uh, uh, analysis yesterday was pretty direct. I mean, <laughs> Judge Barrett didn't seem to – I mean, she said, what's your first name? Well, I can't really make a commitment to that. She would not answer anything about the transition of power, uh, about her role with, with Roe versus Wade. Uh, and, and I know that she, she went back and said, well, that's the Ginsburg rule. But, uh, and I know what, you know what happened with RBG when she was, got the nomination in 1993, and she said she shouldn't make a commitment because that presupposes what she's going to do. But 30 seconds later, she went on about women's rights. I mean, so uh, there's, there's the Ginsburg rule and there's the other Ginsburg rule. And she just, she's been very evasive through this whole process. She's an abomination. She didn't even know what the five tenets of the First Amendment were. <laughs> redress she forgot the redress of grievances is inherent in our first amendment and you know besides free speech and the other four uh but she, she the fact the simple fact of the matter is is she's unqualified for the role she hasn't been a judge that long she's young she's in for life what this shows is the gop has taken a very long view on controlling the courts and they've used donald trump to force feed three people down our throats in the united states who's opinions and ideals do not match the governed masses the majority of people in the united states do not believe in what this woman believes or what some of the more conservative judges believe and yet they're going to be forced to live under the tyranny of the minority for the next 30 or 40 years unless uh unless the democrats do a pack the court or b come up with legislation that c can be passed through both houses and signed by a a president, and that's not going to happen unless the Democrats control both the Senate and the House, and incidentally and coincidentally, the presidency. Uh, so it's it's a tough road to hoe. The Democrats are not, you know, this election cycle has proven that um, the bar has been lowered so much that even the Democrats can crawl across it, but the the Republicans can't chin up to it. Um, it's a frightening uh, time for our country. When you have uh, people who are uneducated and not voting. Uh, another story that broke yesterday, of course, is uh, uh, Bill Barr, of course, uh, Trump's lapdog over at uh, the Attorney General's office, uh, with his ongoing investigation of the uh, of the Obama administration. And we were expecting, you know, that October <laughs> surprise and bombshell, and, and it, you know, there were going to be indictments and everything else. Basically, they said nothing to see here, uh, which has got to be a slap in the face to, to Trump. I know he's pretty angry at Barr once again, isn't he? Yeah, well, look, here's the thing. All of that went through the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton. Remember, the Republicans have tried this at least three times, and they haven't gotten – there's nothing there. If there were even a scintilla of of real information there that could be pinned against the Democrats, they would have had them in court, you guarantee it. There would have been charges. But this is – now the third time they've gone through this and cannot find anything there. There is no smoking gun. The worst that they can do is the New York Post published an untrue story about Joe Biden's son. That's the best October surprise they can come up with so far. Uh, that and today Kamala Harris uh, had a couple of uh, members of her staff test positive for the coronavirus, so she's going off the road for two days. And that's the most Republicans can come up with. And it's got him frightened. The electorate in the United States is kind of because, and it's Trump's fault. He has made the the the, the Republican, he's made the voters just so numb 
to his accusations that whatever comes out, no one's going to really listen to at this point. They've made well, up their mind. And at the end of the day, there's Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, announcing that he's going to release the Hillary Clinton emails. Is, is Mr. Pompeo ha- comfortable living in 2015 as opposed to 2020? Well, that's the question everyone's asking is, does, does Donald Trump know he's not running against Hillary Clinton? <laughs> <laughs> that was four years ago. And, and that's the, and Pompeo's scratched through the bottom of the barrel and is now in thin air trying to find something to come up with. And they can't do it. It's uh, as you say, they're re- they're refighting the 2016 campaign at the same time trying to focus on what's going on. Uh, tell me about well, tonight. Thing, I mean, they're I... not really trying to focus on what's going on. They are living in because that's all that Donald Trump has. He's a one trick pony. He's trying to play the same trick that he played in 2016. You know, he came in one day and said he's the underdog. No, he's not. He's the incumbent. He's he's. He's not where he was in 2016. He has the entire power of the federal government behind him. The underdog would be the guy who's on the outside trying to win the election, and that would be Joe Biden. But Trump cannot come up with, because he cannot govern, and because he has no new ideas, and because he hires people that, quite honestly, I have to tell you, would not be able to get a job anywhere else if they didn't work for Donald Trump. He's got some. He's got someone in his press office now who used to run a comedy uh, night in New York City. That's his communication staff. It's literally a joke. So there's nothing that this guy has done or can do other than what he's already done. And people, I think, have had enough of it. The other side to this, too, of course, is, is the investigation into the Bidens, uh, which Barr, again, is, is, is you know trying to dig up dirt on. Uh, do you anticipate any major announcement on that one, too, before November 3rd? If they could. (laughs) (laughs) Point taken. (laughs) If they can come up with something. You know, uh, Joe Biden one day played a a Beatles record backwards and and found out that, you know, Satan was behind it all. They'd do that. (laughs) If they could, they would. Uh, That sounds like your lead for the next blog, uh, your podcast, anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Brian, it's uh, never dull there, and it's always great to get your perspective on what's been happening uh, over the last 40 hours or so in in the uh, wild and wacky world of presidential elections. Thanks, as always, for your time today, Brian. We'll talk again soon. Sure. Always a pleasure. Brian J. Karam, of course, uh, from Sentinel Newspapers and, uh, of course, political analyst on CNN. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.